Full speed ahead. That's the message from Senate Republicans when it comes to the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, President Trump's nominee for the next Supreme Court justice, his third. That's the message despite three Republican senators testing positive for the coronavirus, two of whom sit on the Judiciary Committee. The other senator, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, says he's going to wear a moon suit if he has to, to vote for Barrett. But the timeline moves on with virtual hearings and interviews before an in-person vote. Well, that's the plan for now. This is even as there has been no agreement on a COVID relief package, a subject for another show. Democrats, for reasons of safety and politics, are fighting it, but there's little they can do. And all this is happening in the middle of a contentious election season. To preview, Equal Time welcomes a key figure from another Supreme Court fight, another scorched earth battle with the power to change, possibly for a generation, the political direction of the Supreme Court. That was when Anita Hill took center stage at the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing nearly 30 years ago. Both sat before the Senate Judiciary Committee, presided over by former Vice President Joe Biden, then a Democratic senator from the state of Delaware, and now presidential candidate. Can you tell the committee what was the most embarrassing of all the incidences that you have alleged? I think the one that was the most embarrassing was his discussion of, of pornography involving these women with large breasts. On view was this panel of white men questioning, some would say interrogating, an African-American lawyer and professor about the behavior of a conservative black judge being considered to replace civil rights icon Thurgood Marshall. This was before Me Too became a hashtag. And to say the senators were clueless when discussing sexual harassment would be an understatement. In his words, not yours, in his words, can you tell us what on that occasion he said to you? You have described the essence of the conversation. In order for us to determine, well, can you tell us in his words what he said? A divided nation chose sides. But what was characterized as he said, she said, was a lot more complicated. There were other witnesses, not called, in Washington, ready to testify. One of them, Angela Wright, had worked for Clarence Thomas at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and had her own story to tell. She now lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, and is a freelance writer, editor, and actor. She joins Equal Time to preview the importance of the current court battle to recall her own experience, and to tell listeners how she views the role played by Joe Biden, then and in retrospect. Welcome, Angela. Thank you, Mary. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Well, to begin, for our uh, listeners, in the interest of full disclosure, Angela and I are friends. We met years after the hearing when we were both uh, colleagues at the Charlotte Observer newspaper, and these days, we're both senior leaders with the Op-Ed Project. But with a few exceptions, we have not discussed those 1991 hearings, because generally we have better things to talk about. <laughs> True. So let's start at the beginning. First of all, uh, I want to start by playing you some tape from those 1991 hearings. One of your press conferences, 
you said that the issues that you raised about Judge Thomas, you referred to it as an ugly issue. Is that how you viewed these conversations? Yes, they were very ugly. They were very dirty. They, they were disgusting. Were any one of these conversations, this will be my last question, my time is up, were any one of these conversations other than being asked to go out, were any one of them repeated more than once? The, the same the same conversation, reference to? Their reference to his own uh, physical attributes was repeated more than once, yes. Now again, for the record, did he just say, I have great physical capability and attributes, or was he more graphic? He was much more graphic. Can you tell us what he said? Well, I can tell you that he compared his penis size uh, he, he measured his penis in terms of le length, um, those kinds of comments. So, Angela, what's your reaction? Well, it's, it's the same as it was even you know, at that time, which is that those questions were so totally inappropriate and unnecessary. Um, they were, I think, you know, just designed to stoke some kind of prurient interest. This professor of law had sent in what should have been considered um, serious accusations against the man that they were considering for the Supreme Court. The kind of detail they asked her to reveal was, you know, was humiliating. And I think any woman would have felt, um, um, you know, put off by that or embarrassed and perhaps even intimidated. I am uh, impressed by how gracious she was and how stoic and, and, and how she held her own. But, you know, really, when you just listen to those questions, well, did he get more graphic than that? Was that necessary? The, the issue is whether this man is the caliber of person that you want to put on the Supreme Court for a lifetime appointment. Those details about and just how much did he say were, were not necessary. It's difficult when you listen to that. It seems like another time and place, you know? And I think it's really hard for some younger people to imagine how just much of a spectacle the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill hearings became. For a lot of them, the fight over the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh is the measure of how rough they can become. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you became a central player in what became, it seems like, a national obsession? and a cultural touchstone. I mean, you were even portrayed by Jennifer Hudson, Academy Award winner, in the 2016 HBO show Confirmation. So tell us about your role in that. Oh, well, you know, it was, um, I sort of backed into it. It was not something I just went, um, went for. I was working at the Charlotte Observer, as you know, and I had been talking with one of the editors about wanting to become a columnist. So in that process, I had been writing columns and he was constantly giving me feedback on what's more timely. Now, as a backdrop, let me say, having worked for um, 
Clarence Thomas, who at the time was chairman of the EEOC, I was well aware that they were grooming him to take Thurgood Marshall's seat. Thurgood Marshall was well aware that they were grooming him to take his seat. And he hung on as long as he could. I mean, he literally said, I just can't hang on any longer while while he was um, when he was ill. And he made some, you know, veiled references to acknowledging who they were going to replace him with. But I was not really interested in pursuing that because I was just trying to be a journalist and not get involved in it. But I decided when I came home that night and I saw Professor Hill on television, um, the news was breaking and she was standing there at a microphone um, explaining her accusations and what went on. What really fueled me was the um, reaction from some of the senators one of them, I can't remember exactly which one at this point, said, well, yeah, when, he, when they were challenged about why they had not pursued her accusations um, with her, one of them said, well, you know, all she said was what he said. I figured it had, since he hadn't touched her, um, you know, that it wasn't that big a deal. So I decided I'd write about that because I also had served um, under him as his director of public affairs. And he'd made very similar comments to me in front of other people. He was always pressuring me to date him. He asked me what size my breasts were. He, he, you know, he, and he would make these kind of little comments, like she said, at the beginning of staff meetings, senior staff meetings. So there were, there were a lot of people who knew this is who he was, who know even now that that was the truth. So I just decided, you know, to write a column suggesting, okay, well, confirming that this is this woman should not be castigated this way. I, she's telling the truth. I know this man. He said similar things to me. The column got shared with Senator Biden staff. Senator Biden staff called me and asked me if I'd be um, willing to testify. I wasn't really willing to go to Washington because, again, I was. It was a fine line between trying to just be a journalist and trying to. Um, speak truth that I knew about this particular situation. That's how I ended up with a subpoena because I was willing for them to, you know, use whatever statement I gave them. But um, I really didn't want to, to go physically and be involved. So I was subpoenaed, went up there, and they never called me. How do you feel about not being called? You were reluctant in a sense, but but how do you feel once you were there? Well, once I was there, I was fully willing to testify. I didn't have a problem with what with 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 what I wanted to say. I had a problem with the image of journalists running, getting involved in this story. But my truth was the truth, so I was perfectly willing to do that. And then once I got there, with my attorneys, we were literally in their law offices watching the proceedings and hearing these comments being made about me. You know, that I that he'd fired me because I called some guy the F word a lie. It was perjury that um, he had never been satisfied with it in my work. None of that was true. So I was I was fuming because I was sitting there while these people were vilifying me and not I had no opportunity to um, defend myself. Well, now a full speed ahead. They're going with the Amy Coney Barrett. A fight over her nomination, and it's heating up in these contentious times. Uh, COVID be darned. <laughs> so what is going through your mind as they're uh, gearing up for this Amy Coney Barrett fight? Just remembering that, that 
you know, the Supreme Court is supposed to be apolitical. Clearly it is not. It has not been for a while. It is, it is I think, just, just sad that um, uh, it, the position has become so politicized. However, with Amy Coney Barrett, um, you know, I don't anticipate any of the Clarence Thomas and, you know, um, Kavanaugh kinds of theatrics. It seems that um, all I'm hearing about with her is uh, concern about her using her religious beliefs to steer her um, judicial um, opinions. I think that's what's going to happen. I don't know that there's a whole lot we can do about that. I honestly question why she, as a jurist, if she were truly um, committed to separation of powers, why she wouldn't also agree that her nomination should be um, tabled until after the election. Clearly, she is um, going to work for her own self-interest. Who wouldn't want a position that you can have for the rest of your life? No more. Um, no more job hunting. Um, so, you know, she's 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 um, obviously ready to be um, nominated and put on the bench. We don't know what's going to happen as these COVID cases keep um, popping up amongst the uh, Senate. But I, 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 I perhaps wouldn't feel as concerned about her appointment if it were happening last year. But to rush it through now is just unfair, particularly when they um, uh, did something, did just the opposite in 2016 with um, Barack Obama's appointment. You brought up the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and I suppose that your experience over issues of sexual harassment, what was called that, that's what uh, the accusations were, and he defended himself. I suppose that what you went through had a closer tie with the Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, tell, tell me about your reaction to those. Did you have a flashback? Absolutely. That was deja vu. And what struck me most about that was how they isolate women when women make charges against um, these these powerful men. Um, Christine Lassie Ford wasn't the only woman who said that he had acted inappropriately. There were other women who were immediately dismissed and um, vilified and not allowed to testify or, you know, whose, whose, whose comments were, you know, um, disparaged without opportunity for them to respond. Very similar to mine. And the, in, in the Clarence Thomas Anita Heron, uh, Hill case, there were three other women who were prepared to come and testify. So they couldn't quite get me, uh, hide me away because they had already gone through the trouble of setting up a, a, a committee. They literally took my statement over the phone, supposedly with a bipartisan subcommittee, a judiciary committee. So they had already announced this to the media. So there was no way for them to put me back in the box. But the other women, the three other women, um, and, and I, I could call their names, but I don't feel that, that I, sh I should. I have the right to. But there were three other women um, who could have provided um, support for Professor Hill's testimony who just weren't allowed in the door. And I think that's... Um, 
what happened with, with um, um, the Kavanaugh hearing too. Because if you can isolate it, you can make it just one woman saying this. Then you can make it a he said, she said. You can come up with all kinds of excuses about why this particular woman wants to challenge this particular man. The reason the Me Too movement has, has, I think, has been so successful is because so many women were able to come out at the same time. So many women were able to talk about what Harvey Weinstein did to them. It's very difficult to vilify the first accuser after all the others came forth. Yeah, that old cliche about there being strength in numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there will be, you know, it was interesting, Mary, because I had so many people telling me, let me just say that, uh, and I don't mind calling this name because he's so far out there. Clarence Thomas had an assistant by the name of Armstrong Williams, who's a very conservative uh, columnist um, um, who I knew from working with, with him, and he had called me um, weeks before the nomination and trying to feel, figure out how I would respond if I got a call for a character reference. I said, you, you don't want them to call me. This is not what you want to have happen. Is if they call me, you're not going to like what I say to them. And he said to me at the time, okay, well, that's fine. And then hopefully they won't call you because you don't have anything good to say about somebody. You shouldn't say anything at all, right? And I said to him at the time, listen, I'm not going to volunteer any information, but if anybody calls me, I'm going to tell them exactly what I know about Clarence Thomas. Interestingly, they never called me. I received two White House appointments, mid-management appointments. The first one, under the Reagan administration, the first one was to the um, uh, U.S. Uh, AID under the State Department as a um, media specialist. Second one was, of course, to the EEOC as the Director of Communications. In both of those cases, the FBI did such a thorough background check on me that they went to homes that I had not lived in since I was a preschooler. They, they talked to people who had no idea who my family was. They even found where I had um, um, bounced a check in college at a Shoney's restaurant. All of that was in my file. Interestingly, when they were vetting Mr. Thomas, they never called his director of communications. They never bothered to, to say, let us talk to some of the senior people who used to be on his staff, at least not this person. So, you know, the, the way they can uh, contrive and manipulate to get these nominations through is just, it's really pretty tragic because this system of checks and balances that we're supposed to rely on, it's supposed to make America so great, um, it's just kind of full of holes. And these the Supreme Court nominations make that pretty obvious. You're giving us quite a uh, education in the inner workings of uh, the Washington bureaucracies, uh, Angela. Mm, yeah, I was going to move us a little bit to the present uh, and what's going on now in politics in Washington, and the fact that you are a writer and you wrote a column for the Washington Post just last year, and the title of it was the headline: "Joe Joe Biden doesn't owe me an apology." Clarence Thomas does. And you talked about the treatment of Hill and wrote, and I quote, Biden was about as useful as an umbrella to a skydiver. 
But you also wrote that Biden was not a me too villain. And I quote that as well. So could you talk a little bit about the column and what your message was that you were trying to get across? Sure. Um, I wrote that column because actually there had been a statement published that was allegedly made by Professor Hill that uh, Joe Biden not only owed her an apology, but owed all the other women who were trying to call in, including me, uh, an apology. Um, I felt that, number one, that was almost 30 years ago, and that was not the measure that I wanted to judge Joe Biden with in terms of his suitability for challenging Donald Trump. I think that um, he definitely was useless during those hearings. He tilted the hearings towards um, Clarence Thomas. When he said to him, well, you know, the benefit of the doubt goes with you. I suppose legally that was true, but it also sort of made it obvious that um, he was not trying to support Professor Hill. And he didn't do anything at that particular time to support her as chairman of the committee. I think it, had he had any respect for her, for African-American women, for the position that she was in, he could have asked the other members to temper um, their comments. But even all that being said, that was 30 years ago. He um, had um, always indicated that he wished that he had handled it differently. And he, and he wrote the Violence Against Women Act. So in terms of who he is at his core, I don't believe that Joe Biden is a Me Too villain. I believe that Joe Biden certainly is a person who um, sometimes doesn't think before he speaks and may say uh, inappropriate things. But uh, there's no way that I cared more about a, an apology from Joe Biden than I did about him um, showing us the path forward if he be, were to become the Democrat nominee. That was the most important thing. I think we always have to choose our battles. And in this particular case, neither of our candidates are perfect beings. I don't see that um, Joe Biden has done anything. And, and again, if we have to go back 30 years to find something to zing Joe Biden with, then maybe he doesn't need to be zinged. Do you hold him responsible for not calling you? Um, yes, yes, yes. I, I, I think it was totally within Joe Biden's power to call me. Um, he and his staff had conversations you know, behind closed doors that... I and my attorneys were not really privy to. Um, I don't, to this day, know why he decided not to call us. I know that at the last hour, like, you know, two o'clock in the morning, they made uh, a suggestion to my attorney that, well, you know, maybe we should just not call her. You know, we'll put her statement in the um, record. And um, if she if she asks us to let her out of the subpoena, so there was literally this little conflict with my attorneys and Joe Biden staff because they called and said if she will tell ask us to let her out of the subpoena, we will, and then we'll put her statement in the record. And it was clearly an attempt to exonerate them and um, to make me look like some some nutcase that went running up there and then got cold feet, which is which is what some of the senators said for me to not testify. And finally, what actually happened was the attorney said, look, my attorney said, look, if you guys don't want her, 
that's fine. You are the ones that issued the subpoena. You are the ones that called her to testify. If you don't want her, then you need to release her from the subpoena and um, she'll be happily go on back you know, to being a journalist. Um, and so that is when they sent a letter over that said, uh, although it is my hope that you will testify, you know, something about with our being late and the consideration. So they sent this bogus letter over that um, we signed and just said, fine, we'll go back home. You've talked a little bit about the Barrett hearings going forth, um, but how should those hearings uh, work themselves out? <sighs> and, you know, in, 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 if everything was right with the world, that nomination doesn't go forth because in a month, in less than a month, we're going to be choosing a president, perhaps a new president. So the idea of ramming just weeks before a, a new president is elected, ramming a, a, a Supreme Court nominee um, in, 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 into the uh, a Senate hearing when, when they don't want to do any other work. You know, they don't want to consider any other bills, but they want to consider this nomination simply because they want to control women. And I think that's the biggest concern about um, Judge Barrett is that um, her her stance on Roe v. Wade and her uh, the likelihood that she would be willing to roll back a lot of women's rights. So I don't think it should go forth. I think it will, however, if the Senate. Um, has the votes. Now we're talking about women, women's rights, and looking back at the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas hearings, one thing that did come out of that legacy, you know, people started talking about sexual harassment, and a lot more women started to run for office. And look, this year we have uh, Kamala Harris, which is, she's making history on the ticket. So looking back, what do you think has been the legacy uh, of those hearings that you were a part of in many ways? I think uh, Professor Hill deserves a tremendous amount of credit for the dignified manner in which she handled those really um, humiliating, embarrassing, uh, totally unnecessary questions that the senators were asking her. I think that the female reaction was on two levels. First, I think there were a lot of women who were just infuriated by the fact that they saw this law professor sitting there trying as graciously as she could to let them know why this particular man was not um, the best candidate for the Supreme Court. And I think that there was another level where there were African-American women who were infuriated because what they saw was this accomplished African-American professor of law being grilled by these white senators and being asked to say things and to to talk about experiences. That seemed to be that the, the purpose of the question was just to stoke their own prurient interest. So um and 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 it degrade it was degrading. So I think that Professor Hill deserves a lot of credit for what happened after that. There were so many women running for office and, and winning offices on all levels, on state levels, and Congress saw a record number of women because they, it, it just underscored what was going on with our legislative bodies, that we had these 
white men, in many cases, these old white men making all these rules and being very insensitive to women, to their rights. You've said what you think should happen and they should delay the hearings for Amy Coney Barrett, but it looks like they will go forward. So what should American people be looking out for? And how, based on your experience, will this be working out? Well, I think they should pay attention to what is being said about her, what is being said about her decisions. They need to do their own homework. And I um, encourage everybody to like do your own homework. And if they see anything that they are concerned with, then they have to write their senators and express their support or lack thereof um, for, for this nominee. I honestly don't think there's a whole lot that that can be done. I think it's a done deal. And that's maybe an awfully pessimistic um, view. But I understand how um, critical this seat is for Republicans because, I mean, it would solidify a solid conservative uh, majority on on the court. Um, And and I think they're going to do, if they have to go virtual, Whatever they're going to do, they're going to do the best to push this through. What the American voters have to do is due diligence. They have to do their homework and figure out who Amy Coney Barrett is and then make their um, concerns or their their wishes known to their senator. I have a question that I ask every everybody that comes on equal time, which is, what is a question that I have not asked you for which you have the answer? You have not asked me. If I would do anything different, knowing what I know now, given the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearing. And I can tell you that I would. I could tell you that I would have insisted that I be allowed to testify. And why is that? Because the narrative about what happened has 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 not actually been um, the truth. There were just so many because since I wasn't allowed to testify, since people didn't get to see me, the narrative was written by the senators and um, Judge Thomas's supporters, and it became obvious after we walked away that I had given up my voice. I was not aware at that moment how important my voice was. All I was really aware of was that I was in this awkward position as a journalist. I mean, we were literally, my attorneys and I, running from the media. You know, when, when I got off the plane and I, it, it was such a conflict of feelings for me. It was like, here I am, a journalist running from the media who's just trying to get their story. And I was more concerned with trying to maintain some semblance of objectivity, some, you know, trying to just say, okay, I'm a journalist. But um, what I became painfully aware of was that in that moment, when we said, okay, fine, take the papers, I'm going home, I gave somebody else my voice. And I would never do that again, no matter what the consequences. Well, I've known you through the years, uh, and you have been someone who speaks her mind which is, I think, one reason we're friends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, I appreciate you giving us so much time and so much of your heart and coming on with a friend and giving people a little peek of of, of some of the things we talk about. Although some of the things we talk about, nobody will ever know. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing, our listeners. But you've given them so much to think about and opened up so much about your experiences and, and your beliefs uh, going forward. So thank you again, Angela Wright, for joining Equal Time. Thank you for having me. And thank you for for establishing this platform where we can have these important conversations. I got some interesting responses when I asked listeners, what keeps you up at night? So one wrote, the fact that we have exceeded last year's number of background checks for firearms in August of this year. Additionally, there are shortages of ammunition. It sells out of stores in minutes, meaning there are stockpiles in the homes of gun owners. Why? And still another said, for me, it's the thought that my son will live in a world where an authoritarian nation, China, is the most powerful country in the world. And one simply asks, what do you got? So what's keeping me up lately? COVID, of course, and worries about all those folks, quietly, dutifully, invisibly, cleaning, cooking, and serving the first family and those who passed through the White House. Now, my dad used to take side gigs, waiting tables and tending bars when I was a little girl. Well, he had five kids and a wife. And he would tell us how the guys he served and the loudest were mostly guys, okay? And he said they hardly noticed his hard work. Sometimes he'd get a bit of a tip, but others, unbelievably, would try to feel big by making him look small. Over a glass of scotch, when he finally returned home, he loosened his tie and he would unwind and let loose with stories and something he really could never do on the job. So I I hung on every word. And I'm thinking of all those who keep the White House clean, who keep it humming, who could never tell a president to keep his distance or put on a mask. After all, they don't have the power. And that makes it more important to have someone looking out for them at work. And then when they return home to family members, some of whom could be vulnerable to this virus. I'm sure they unwind with their little girls and boys and they have their thoughts and also their fears. And I pray that they stay safe and well. It's something I talk about in my latest roll call column. Check it out. Let me know what you think. And please, tweet me your own sleep-disrupting thoughts at mcurtisnc3. Thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.